enough. First Peter chapter 1, if you would. We began our study of 1 Peter last week. We're getting acquainted with the author of this epistle, the Apostle Peter, and uh, tried to give last week a very brief synopsis of his life and the transformation that was wrought in him by him following Christ and how that Christ molded him from that fisherman, that impulsive fisherman, to a courageous leader of the church. And the point of the whole study was, was, was to be confident that Christ still transforms men. He is, He can, He will transform you and I into the vessel of honor that He desires you and I to be. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And the Lord has a way of calling the most unlikely of men to His service, but He enables us, He empowers us for the ministry that we would never be able to do in the weakness of our flesh. And so we come to 1 Peter chapter 1. We've talked about the author. We're going to just introduce the book this morning. And I want you to look at verse number 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It was the year 64 AD. In fact, it was July 19th. 64 A.D. to be exact. That date is an infamous date in history because that is the day that somebody set a fire in the city of Rome and it caused serious devastation in that city. By the time that they would put that fire out three days later, nearly the entire city of Rome has burned to the ground. That fire would go for three days. They say that that um, they would put out the fire in one part of the city and, and all of a sudden another fire would start in another part of the city. Almost as if the fire had just leaped across buildings. Or almost as if somebody was setting the fire. Hundreds of buildings were burned to the ground. Thousands of people were left, were left homeless. And, and, and there's been a lot of cities that have been burned by fire, but what made... This fire so infamous was who started the fire. It was not an accident of nature. It was not a work of some rogue arson wanting a little fun. But historians have not proved it, but they believe that the fire was started by none other than Nero, the emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, if you knew anything about Nero, you would have no problem believing that. Nero's the guy that had his own mother killed. Nero had one of his wives killed. Nero was certifiably insane. So burning a city to the ground, even his city was not beyond him. But why would he do it? Rome was not a glorious city, at least not enough so for Nero. It was widely known that Nero wanted to be, rebuild Rome. They had ramshackle buildings that were all crammed together. And he wanted to rebuild it with palaces and monuments and, and things that would establish his name in history, all the great men in history have their names etched on cities and monuments, and they were great builders, and that's what Nero wanted. So history concurs that Nero burned Rome so that he could rebuild Rome to the glory of his own name. Well, as you can imagine, the citizens of Rome were, were livid. They, they were incensed. Their temples were all gone, leaving them to wonder, have my gods been able to protect me? Were they not able to stop this horrible disaster? The homes were in ashes. Their businesses were lost. Their loved ones and neighbors have suffered a horrible, horrible death. 
And the history says that Nero stood on the roof of one of his palaces and he laughed and, and, and he, he watched with glee as this city burned to the ground. But he knew that these angry people, they're going to have to divert their attention to somebody else and, and he's going to need a scapegoat. And he knew just the people to blame because there was in that city a group of people that followed a man named Jesus Christ. Now these people are not prone to violence. They're not known to insurrection. So it would be a stretch to believe that they would start a fire and set this city on fire. But they're suspect because they don't fit in with Roman culture. They had, they had strange customs that opened them up to wild rumors. These, these, they were called Christians and these Christians, were, were, would, would, well, they, did, they didn't worship any of the gods of, of the Roman Empire. So maybe they have angered the gods and maybe the gods have done this in retaliation against them. And, and so maybe the gods are punishing the city because of the Christians. Either way, the Christians have got to be responsible. Society already looked down on Christianity. Mostly because they're misunderstood, because they were slandered. The Christians had this thing called the Lord's Supper that they partook of. And they talked about eating the Lord's flesh and drinking the Lord's blood. It opened them up to rumors of cannibalism. From there, wild speculation that they ate babies and that they killed Gentiles at those things. And, 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 and Christians often talked about a day when, when, when the Lord would come and the whole world would be set on fire. It's not a stretch to think that maybe they would set a city on fire. And so Nero had a win-win situation. He can rebuild the city in its vision, but he also has a reason to unleash persecution against the people that are already hated by a large segment of society. Tacitus, the Roman historian, says that Nero began his reign of terror by bringing Christians in and under torture, forcing them to confess to setting the fire. It unleashed one of the ten waves of persecution of the Roman Empire. Christians were arrested. They were thrown in prison. They were made to endure the most horrific persecutions ever brought against the people. Historians say that Nero would have them covered in tar and set them on fire, crucified to a cross as lights in his garden. Uh, he, would, um, he would drag them through the streets behind Roman chariots. They were thrown to wild beasts. They were, they were dragged out of their house and they were crucified and they were lynched and they were racked and they were stoned and they were burned alive and they were driven through with hot knives and they were thrown on the horns of wild bulls and on and on it goes. And Christians fled the city but the long arm of the Roman Empire reached them wherever they went and punished them for being the scourge of the world. And the persecution that began in the city of Rome spreads throughout the entire empire. Now, I tell you that story because that's a historical setting for 1 Peter. 1 Peter is written either shortly before or shortly after the persecution was unleashed against this church, and it is written to scattered congregations of believers who have lost everything for the cause of Christ. And it's written not to tell them how to escape the persecution or how to rise up and against the evil empire, it is written to tell them how to suffer gladly for Christ and to give them hope in their suffering. That's what it's written for. Now this morning I want to introduce the book to you. That's the setting for it. And as we open the book up and we look at verse number one, there are four features to First Peter I want to give you by way of introduction. Now this is mostly teaching this morning, all right? So you can listen, but you can say amen as well if you'd like, all right? So the first thing that we want to say about the book as we introduce the book is the author, the author. And the opening verse obviously names Peter 
as the author of this letter. Now, we've already talked about Peter last week. So I'm not interested in anything about Peter himself. We're not, we're not going to go back through this. But when I study a book, I like to study every opinion. I don't, I don't read just the guys that I agree with. I read guys that I, I don't agree with. I, I like to read critics and liberals and know what their arguments are and whether I can answer that or not. So I was intrigued in my studies of 1 Peter that the higher critics begin their criticisms of this book with the first word, Peter. Now, when you read that, for you and I, that simply means that it was Peter. Simple enough, right? I read Peter, and I just assume that whoever wrote this book was named Peter. And then I read Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I just assume, oh, it was that Peter. There's only one Peter who was apostle. So I just assume in my simplicity that it was that Peter that wrote that book. But when you approach the Bible from a doubter's mindset, from a, from a higher critic point of view, from the idea that I'm smarter than the Bible, then simple phrases like that will confuse you. So there's much debate as to whether Peter actually wrote this book or not. So here's what the higher critics does. He looks at the style of writing. He says, oh, there's no way that Peter could have written this. Peter was an ignorant, unlearned man in Max chapter 4. It doesn't mean he was dumb. It just means he didn't have a formal education. He didn't have any degrees on his wall. They say that the style of Greek is classical Greek. It's very sophisticated. It's unlikely that somebody who never went to seminary could write in this kind of Greek. Then they say if you'll compare 1 Peter with 1 Peter, 2 Peter, all oh, those two books are so differently that it's no way the same Peter could have written both books. They have written volumes to prove that it was Peter, it wasn't Peter, it was a different Peter, it was a Peter not named Peter, whatever it might be. But I'm going to help you this morning. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a tip in Bible study, all right? I'm going to tell you how you know with absolute certainty that it was Peter the Apostle who wrote this letter. Here's how you know it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, now you can read the sermons in Acts 1 or in the book of Acts, and you can read 1 Peter and you can find similar phrases and say, boy, there's a connection there. Uh, you, can, you can read church historians who, um, who quote 1 Peter and then quote it as coming from Peter. So, boy, there's evidence. But here's what I do. I just read it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Good enough for me. Peter wrote the book. Now, not only, not only is the author debated, but the place of writing is debated. You see, the Roman Catholic Church believes that Peter was the bishop of the church at Rome, which would make him the first pope. Peter is the first pope. So they say. Now that's important to them. Because of what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16 and verse 18. I say unto thee also that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Catholic Church believes that the rock Jesus was referring to was Peter himself. And the church that he's talking about is their church. So with Peter as the first pope, it helps to apply the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 16 directly to the Roman Catholic Church. However, it would be helpful to the cause if they could at least place Peter in Rome. If the rumor is that Peter was the bishop of the church of Rome, 
then if we could put him in Rome, that would help us just a little bit. However, there is no historical evidence that Peter was ever in Rome. In fact, there's a couple of reasons I don't believe Peter was ever in Rome. One of the reasons why I don't believe is because when Paul was in Corinth, he wrote a letter to the church at Rome. You know that letter as Romans, all right? In the last chapter, chapter 16, he names 29 people by name that are in the church at Rome. One of them is not Peter. Now that seems odd that he wouldn't at least mention the pastor in the letter. Then when he got to Rome, he wrote five epistles from Rome. In all of those epistles, he never mentioned Peter one time. Again, odd omission if Peter was the pastor there. Now, I bring all of this out because in the epistle of 1 Peter, Peter actually tells you where he was when he wrote the book. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And look at verse number 13. 1 Peter 5 and verse 13. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. Hey, Babylon is not Rome. Babylon is a long way from Rome. If Peter is in Babylon, he's not in Rome. So commentators who are sympathetic to the Catholic problem or too blinded by their own biases against the Scripture, they got to fix that. So here's how most commentators will fix that. They change Babylon to Rome. So here's what they say. Babylon is actually code for Rome. Because, because Rome, Rome really embodied all the immorality of Babylon, the idolatry. Boy, that's Rome now. Or they say, you know, you know, the situation is so bad and so dangerous that, that Peter actually used Babylon as an alias for Rome. That's kind of like a code. It's kind of like a head fake. You know, everybody knows where he's at, but you don't want to say where he's at because the authorities after him. And so because it's so dangerous, he would actually endanger the believers at Rome. And so, so he's saying that he's in Babylon. So, so let me help you just, just for a minute, okay? I'm going I'm to show you. This is a little tip in Bible study. Here's how you can know. When you hear all of this, here's how you can know where he was when he wrote it. Are, are you ready for it? The church that is at Babylon... Elected together with you. That's where he was. He was at Babylon. Now, if I read a hundred Christian histories that say there were never any Christians in Babylon, Peter never visited Babylon, there is no way that Peter could have written this book from Babylon, I would weigh all of that evidence, scratch my head, and then I would read the church that is at Babylon. Yep, he was in Babylon. That's where he was. So you've got to know something about the author of the book. I'm having a little bit of fun with it. But then secondly, you need to know something about the audience of the book. First Peter is what's called a general epistle. There are seven such epistles. James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd Jude. And then they're called general epistles because it's believed that they were written to churches in general, not one church in particular. There's these congregations that are scattered across these Roman provinces. He mentions them in verse number one. So Peter is addressing Christians in general that belong to different churches scattered into uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to, to believers that are, that are scattered among these different congregations. And in his address to them, there, there are three characteristics about this audience. First of all, they are strangers. Look at verse number one again. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers. Strangers. A stranger is someone who resides in one country, but his citizenship is in another. A stranger is someone who resides in one country or visiting one country, but his citizenship is in another country. If you've ever visited a foreign country, you know what it is to be a stranger. You're surrounded by people who look different, by people who talk different, have a different language, they eat different food, they, they, they have different customs. Whether you're there for a short time or you're there for an extended time, you will always feel like an outsider. You may try to adopt their manners and adapt to their way of living, but you will still be a stranger. I cannot think of stranger without thinking, Brother Nathan, of the day that you and I were strangers in Masaka, Uganda. We had visited several of us men, had gone over to Africa, and we were in Rwanda. Then we came over into Uganda, and on one particular day, the group was going one direction up toward the Nile River, and, and we decided to take a day and go see Brother Keith Stences. Now, we were in the capital city of Uganda, and, we, and they dropped us off at a bus station. We got on this bus, and I think we've told you this story before. So we got on this big coach bus. It's going to take us about five and a half hours uh, to Masaka, where we would meet the missionary. We were so excited because we got the bus, there was nobody on the bus. It it was just us. This is great. We got the bus to ourselves. But then they started filling in. And I mean really filling in. There, there were three seats. It was, it was a, there were three seats on one side and three on the other side. And so we got smart. We got smart. I sat on the window. He, or he sat on the window. I sat on the aisle. We left the middle seat open knowing nobody's going to want to sit between us. But boy, she did, didn't she? <laughs> she did. And we were scrumped in it, and it was hot, and it was miserable, and we laughed just because of how pitiful we were five and a half hours later. But then we get to Masaka, and we get to the bus station, and they drop us off, and Brother Keith was not able to come meet us, so he sent one of his men on a motorcycle to pick us up. And what was so humorous about it, here we are in a sea of very, very, very dark faces. It's just me and you are the only two white guys that I can see of. And so the guy that's coming to pick us up, he has our picture. <laughs> to see who, who we are. He didn't really need a picture. Just, just the, the two lily white guys. That, that's who the guys are that you're picking up. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, we were a stranger. Now imagine how silly it would have been if we'd have tried to blend into the crowd. We're, we're going to look like we're not foreigners and, and, and we're going to try to speak the language. We're going to just act like they do it. And maybe they won't notice that we're Americans. Maybe they won't notice we're not from around here. But you know a lot of Christians do that. They try their best to blend into a world that they do not belong in. They adapt to a world as much as they can, hoping, hoping that the world will not notice that they are not one of them. Hey, hey, we don't have to be strange. We don't have to be odd. But we are called to be strangers. Amen. Not, not weird. Not weird. But distinct. So, so don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed to be seen as godly people in a godless world. And though we may be immersed in our culture, we are to be separated from our culture. So if you as a businessman decide that you're going to conduct your business honestly and fairly and not cheat people, you are a stranger. And if as a husband you decide that you'll be faithful to your wife and honor your marriage vow unto death, you are a stranger. 
And if as a Christian teenager you decide to live a life of Christian conviction, even in the face of peer pressure, you are a stranger. If as a worker in your public workplace, you decide that you're not going to participate in dirty jokes and profanity and, and coarse language, you are a stranger in this world. And Peter addresses these saints as strangers, not because of their location, but because of their vocation. They're not strangers because they are displaced in a foreign country. They're strangers in their own homeland. They have probably grown up in these regions. They spoke the same language. They wore the same clothes. They ate the same food. They lived in the same culture. But when they became followers of Jesus Christ, everything changed. One of the consequences of becoming a believer in Christ is that you become a stranger to people that have known you all of your life. But God's people have always understood that we are strangers in this world. Hebrews 11 and verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. The only other time that you find that phrase strangers and pilgrims is in 2 Peter 1 and verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Someone has aptly said that a stranger is someone who is away from home a pilgrim is someone who is on his way home. They're strangers. But then notice, not only are they strangers, but they're scattered. Look at verse 1 again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers, scattered. He names five Roman provinces that, that is now uh, Western Turkey. And he uses a specific word to, to describe their condition. They are scattered. The word scattered, they say, comes from a Greek word, diaspora. And that word is significant because it is the word that has been used to describe Jewish refugees from both the Babylon and the Assyrian siege against Jerusalem in the Old Testament days. And Jews were driven out of their homeland and they're displaced and scattered throughout all, all, all of the world. And, and from that time, it was AD 70, when when Israel was ended by, by Titus and, and Jews are scattered until 1948 when Israel was reborn. They, they call them the Jews of the dispersion. They're dispersed. They, they, they have been scattered. And because of that Jewish connection, a lot of commentators think that, that Peter's writing to just a Jewish audience. Peter uses a lot of Old Testament references that would mean more to a Jewish audience, but there's also statements to suggest that it was a Gentile audience. I think that he's writing to mixed believers in Asia Minor that was made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And he says that they are scattered. God's people are not only strangers in an alien world, but we have been scattered around the nations to be his witnesses. The promise of being scattered is John 16, 32. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered. Every man to his own and shall leave me alone, yet I'm not alone because his father is with me. He's referring to the time when the church in Jerusalem would be forced out of Jerusalem into the regions of the world under the threat of persecution. Hey, the purpose of scattering is to preach the gospel. Listen to Acts 8 and verse 1. Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad. Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now they which were scattered abroad preaching the word to none but unto the Jew only. You see, God's pushing them out was not punishment, but he's pushing them away from the comfort of Jerusalem unto the uttermost parts of the earth preaching the gospel. 
The Lord never called for Christians to bunker down into communes and to isolate ourselves away from the world. But we go into the world as seed that is scattered. We, we gather together for edification and for worship. Then we go into our communities and our workplaces and schools as gospel witnesses. They're strangers. They're scattered. But then implied in that, they are suffering. Suffering weighs very heavily as the theme in this epistle. He's writing to believers who are every day living in the crucible of suffering and persecution for their faith. That becomes the theme. Suffer or suffering is mentioned 15 times just in 1 Peter. Joseph Parker was a pastor in London, England. He was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. And Parker said to a group of young preachers one day, he said, preach to the suffering, you'll never lack a congregation. He said, there's a broken heart in every pew. You know, when you study the theology of suffering, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there is a shift. In the Old Testament, when you look at those Old Testament saints, suffering was always viewed in the context of chastisement. It was always a result of disobedience to God. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 28, the chapter that talks about curses and blessings, it tells them that sin and suffering, that is cause and effect. And they never did understand the righteous suffering as a means of spiritual growth or for the glory of God. The great perplexity was why do the righteous suffer? And maybe the only person in the Old Testament who understood that God could use suffering for good was Joseph when he said, ye meant it for evil, but God meant it for good unto me. But most had the idea, though not spoken, but in their heart was the idea of, of Job's wife, curse God and die. They didn't understand suffering. David questioned suffering in Psalm 37. Asaph questioned it in Psalm 73. But when you come to the New Testament, the mystery of suffering finds an answer. Suffering is not a mystery. Suffering is a ministry. It is through suffering that Christ teaches us patience and long-suffering. It is through suffering that we learn the grace of compassion. It is through suffering that we learn what it is to lean on Christ for His strength. They're strangers. They're scattered they're suffering. The fourth, third thing I want you to notice about this, just by way of introduction, is the admonition. The admonition. If First Peter was being written today by any popular Christian author, it would be filled with sweet platitudes. It would be filled with empty promises. It would be filled with um, stale cliches. Because that's pretty much what you find in the typical Christian bookstore. I just feel like something good's about to happen. I, I just feel like you're just about to have your breakthrough. God's got a wonderful plan for your life, and boy, good things are coming your way, and we're, we're, we're victors, not victims, and all of that's true. That's not the essence of this epistle. The, the, the book brings comfort, but, but the message is not just comfort. It is instruction. And the purpose of the letter is, is not to assure them that, that persecution is going to end, but it's to teach you how to live, how to live in the face of persecution. So, so 1 Peter is very doctrinal, all right? We're going to get into some very heavy doctrine, but it's also very practical, and here's the reason why. No matter what suffering you're going through, it does not negate the calling in our life to a life of holiness. Adverse circumstances do not give us an out of our Christian duty. And when you survey the book as a whole, there are a number of admonitions that he gives to us even though we are suffering. The first is live in holiness. 
There's a word that Peter uses five times in this book. It is the word conversation. Conversation is not always talking. Conversation is conduct. It is how you live your life. Look at verse number 15. He says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end of your grace. That is to be brought upon you at the revel... Uh, uh, verse 15, I'm sorry. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Look at verse number 18. For as much as ye know that you're not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Chapter 2 and verse number 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Chapter 3, verse number 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also, they may also without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Verse 2. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Verse number 16. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, that may be a shame that falsely accuse you your good conversation in Christ. That's your conduct. Holy conversation. Peter's telling these church that though you are suffering, though you are suffering, your holy conduct is to be a testimony to the grace of God in your life. In every arena, in every relationship, your attitude and your conduct is to demonstrate the change that has been wrought in you by the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't let suffering make you bitter. Don't bow to the pressure of compromise. Don't abandon your convictions when you go through the fire. The trial is designed not to weaken you, but to strengthen you. He says back in chapter 1 and verse 14, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your own ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Live in holiness. There's another admonition that I think is even more difficult than that. And it's live in humility. I don't have time to outline the book for you this morning, but if you'll just look at chapter 1, verse 1 to 12, he talks about salvation. And then verse 13 down through chapter 2 and verse 12, he talks about sanctification. But when he gets to chapter 2 and verse number 13, down to the middle of chapter 3, he talks about submission. He's going to tell us to submit to government. Look at chapter 2 and verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto, him that, unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of them that do well. Then he's going to tell the servant to submit to his master. Look at verse number 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. In chapter 3, he's going to tell the wife to be in submission to her husband. Chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. So, so in the arena of authorities, government, in the arena of employment, in the arena of our homes, submission is key. But here's the thing about it. Submission is difficult because the ones that they are to submit to in these verses are not Christians. Do you realize the government that he's telling them to submit to is the pagan Roman Empire? Verse number 18, servants are exhorted to obey their masters, even the unjust ones, also to the froward. Chapter 3 and verse 1, wives are told to submit to their husbands. In this case, the emphasis is on unbelieving husbands. 
And so we learn that submission is hard. A Christian citizen should submit to a pagan government that is responsible for the deaths of other Christians. A Christian servant, or in our case, an employee, should submit to unjust masters that may even cause them physical harm in that verse. You mean a Christian wife is to submit to an unsaved husband at a time when the status of women was much lower than men in the Roman Empire? Well, submission is hard. Submission goes against our nature. Submission requires you to die to self. Submission may even mean that you suffer or you are wronged. Well, we could preach a whole message on that, couldn't we? I mean, that really goes against everything inside of me. And it doesn't mean that you become a pacifist. It doesn't mean that you become a doormat to everybody to walk on. But submission means that you bow to the will of somebody else. Peter will go on to give theological reasons for this. And it's all centered in the gospel. If you just back up, just, just quickly, because we're coming to these verses, back up to chapter 2 and verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submission is a testimony to good works. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. That's a witness to an unsaved husband. Look at back chapter 2 and verse 21. Even here and two were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. That is an expression of our following Christ. He calls us to live a life of humility. That's not easy, but submission never is. So he calls us to live a life of holiness, live in humility, but then he calls us to live in hope. The emphasis of this book is how to live victoriously in the midst of hostility without losing heart, without wavering in faith, without becoming bitter without falling apart, without having a nervous breakdown, realizing where your hope is, realizing who your Savior is, and always looking forward to that glorious coming of Jesus Christ. That, that's the hope that we have. It's been said by many commentators that Paul is the apostle of faith, and John is the apostle of love, and Peter is the apostle of hope. Suffering is the theme, but hope is the emphasis. Hope gives us confidence in the midst of our trials and tribulation because it gives us something to look forward to. It focuses our attention on the future. Hope is what we want, but we can't see, but we believe we're going to have it. Young ladies used to, I don't know if they do this anymore. It was a silly thing, but young ladies used to have a thing called a hope chest. I have no idea what you would put in a hope chest. I would hope that none of you guys have a hope chest. It would be very disappointing. But a young lady would have a hope chest and would put into that hope chest whatever you put into a hope chest and it has something to do with thinking that one day I'm going to get married. And evidently what is ever in this hope chest, I'm going to use that when I get married or, or dish, I don't know what it is, but, 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 but I am thinking that one of these days it is, it is anticipation of something that I can't see, but I think that it's going to happen. One day I'm going to walk the aisle and I'm going to marry the man that I love. Hey, hope is what we desire, but we don't have, but I trust by faith that I'll have it one day in the future. 
no matter what you're going through, no matter what the world turns, no matter the suffering, no matter the suffering, the admonition to you and I is, is live in holiness and, and live in humility and, and live in hope. That's the admonition of the book. Let me close with this. There's the author and there's the audience and there's admonition, but then there are assurances. And here's what has struck me most as I have tried to get out of verse number one. It has struck me the most how heavy doctrinally this book is. When you read verses one through five, these are some very weighty issues. Usually, if we're trying to comfort somebody in a trial, we don't give them a doctrinal essay. We read Psalm 23. Not that there's anything wrong with that, not that there's not doctrine in that, but that's not a time to sit down and let's go through systematic theology. Right? The church today as a whole is not as accustomed to thinking about doctrine as we should. Most sermons are devoid of deep truth, but doctrine is what will comfort you in a trial. Doctrine is truth, and it is only truth that will give you stability in a very unstable world. I look around this world and I can be very depressed. I've never seen it this bad. I, and, and, and don't get me started. However, when I open the Word of God, when I just get immersed in that and I'm not thinking about what's happening in Washington and the Democrats and the Republicans, and when I'm open the Word of God and I'm, I'm, and I'm studying salvation and the sovereignty of God and the hope of the second coming, that gives me stability. So in these opening verses that he begins, he's going to comfort them, but it's, it's not pablum. It's not cotton candy. It is heavy, heavy truth. And in these opening verses, there are a couple of things that I, that, that I see that, that gives you stability. And the first is the authority of Scripture. Now watch this. Look at verse number one. Look at it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he introduces himself as an apostle which means he received his commission directly from Christ, one of the chosen twelve, being given authority by Christ to speak as, as his representative to the church. And one of the things that the apostles understood was that when they wrote, they wrote with the same authority as they did in the Old Testament. Look, look, look at 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2, look if you would, in verse number 18. Or, or, or chapter 1, chapter 1 and verse 18. He says, that voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in the hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. He's talking about Scripture. But look at chapter 3. Look at verse 15. An account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of those things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Do you see that? You know what Paul was writing? Peter said he was writing scripture. Now, Peter may not have known how far-reaching his writings would go, but I believe that he had a sense of God's hand upon him as he wrote. 
He and the other apostles, they wrote with the conviction that the Spirit of God rested upon them and what they wrote was the absolute truth of God. These words are not of my origin. This message comes from God. Can I tell you that when you and I go through trials, it is a comfort to be able to open one book that you know is the absolute truth of God, to know that whatever is contained herein is not the words of men. It is the words of God. This is a message from my heavenly Father. It is written for you and I. In in, an ever-changing world, there is an unchanging word to anchor our faith to. It is a blessed assurance for me that I have the authority of Scripture anchoring my faith and my hope. Assurance in the authority of Scripture. Not only that, but there is assurance in the assurance of salvation. Come Come back to it. Come back to it. Look at verse 2. We can't preach on it, but look at verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be merciful, be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, 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 So Peter introduces himself. Now he's getting ready to launch into the letter. He doesn't talk about love or mercy or comfort. No, he, he talks to them about election and foreknowledge and sanctification and sprinkling of blood and a heavenly inheritance and a living home and resurrection. Next week, next week, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We're going to deal just with that phrase. Just that phrase. And we may deal with that phrase just two or three weeks. Elect, the doctrine of election, Calvinism. Since we're there, we might as well talk about it. Who will deal with it? Who will deal with it? And we'll move faster through the book as we go. But, but it just takes a while to get started. But, but he's writing about salvation. He reminds them that the Father selected you and the Spirit is sanctifying you and the Son has saved you by His blood. It is almost as if Peter is saying, yes, I know you're suffering, but at least you're saved. Now that sounds cavalier. And it could be said in a flippant way. That is a comfort. There's more truth to come. But let's just begin. That your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. That the Father loves you. That the Spirit's still working in you. The blood of Jesus Christ still avails. My salvation is the bedrock of my hope. I don't have any hope outside of that. And if you're not saved, then your hope has to be in some weak and beggarly element. But for those of us who know Christ, the confidence and the assurance that we have in our salvation makes us stable in an unstable world. I'm done with this. I've got to be done. I've got to be done. He mentions the authority of scriptures, the assurance of salvation, but then there's the anticipation of our security. We'll just read it, verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That simply says, that simply says, there is a future hope that will not fail. It reminds us to keep looking up. Everything around you is corruptible and defiled, but we have an inheritance in heaven that cannot be corrupted and it cannot be defiled. A lot of commentators think that it's talking about heaven. I personally think that it's talking about your glorified body. And no matter what you face down here, it cannot touch the glory that is waiting for you and I in heaven.
I, I'm, I'm excited about getting in First Peter. I really am. And we're going to get past the introduction. We're, we're going to get into the doctrine. Get into, and it, it's a great book. But you know, as I, for several months, praying about what book to preach from, and, and I started reading this book a lot, and meditating on it, I, I realized there's a lot of people suffering today in a lot of different ways. And, and, and there's two different attitudes that you can take towards suffering. And Anna, you come to piano. There, there, are, there are some people who are of a, of a, a fragile mind and, and a very frail spirit. And when trials come, their mind becomes consumed with the trial of their life. And uh, they, they don't have any peace because all of their focus is on the circumstances. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing them. I just say that's how some people's psyche, how their personality, that's just how some people are. There are others who, who take a more um, stoic approach. I can make this. I, I, I'm either going to ignore the trials or, or I'm going to rise above the trials. I'm going to prove myself stronger than the trial. They would never ask for prayer. They would never ask for help because that would be seen as a weakness. But, but when, you, when you face your trials with fear, then you're robbed of the peace of God. But when you face your trials in your own strength, then you're robbed of the grace of God. Because it is not your strength that is sufficient in trials. It is His grace that is sufficient in trials. Now I believe that when the trials come, I don't believe that you ought to face it in fear and fall apart. I think you ought to ask the Lord to help you to have peace even in that storm. But I don't think that you ought to either rise up, rise up in bravado. I'm stronger than my trials. No, I think you really recognize I'm not strong, I'm weak. And I need the grace of God to strengthen me. As we make our way through this epistle, I pray that the God of God, the God of comfort, comforts your hearts. We have members in our church right now who are walking through some deep valleys. And you and I don't know what valley lies ahead. I'll be honest with you, as I began meditating on this book, I, I had a horrible thought. I said, I hope that the Lord is not having me preach on 1 Peter to prepare me for suffering. But if He is, then I pray that His sustaining grace carry me, that His Spirit sanctifies me, that my testimony influences somebody else, that my hope remains fixed on heaven.